Any other hearts prone to wonder? I love that verse. And what is it that binds us to Him? The grace and mercy of God. The love of God constrains us. Hope that encourages you this morning when you are tempted to wander from the one who gave everything for you. It's an encouraging song to sing, one of my favorite hymns. Well, it's an absolute joy to be with you this morning. It's not every day that the uh, associate staff gets to preach, and so it's a joy to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Have you ever had a dream as a young child, young boy, young girl, something you wanted to be, something you wanted to do? I did. I had a dream. I wanted to be a pirate. I blame it all on Walt Disney. I can still remember the first time that I went on the ride, the Pirates of the Caribbean. Some of you are like, what ride? Yes, kids, before the movies, there was the ride. As a young boy, I was mesmerized by all the fun and frolicking mechanical pirates as our little boat went from room to room, just depicting the life and the adventures of piracy. Piracy never looked so good. Pirates basically doing whatever they wanted. In one room, they're playing with those swords and muskets. In another room, one of the pirates is playing tag with one of the ladies from the village. Another room, they're drinking root beer, all they wanted. (laughs) So much fun, so much adventure. Unless we forget one of the very last rooms as you come around, yo-ho, yo-ho, pirate's life for me. Skeleton, swords into the ground, and what do you see? A heaping pile of treasure, gold and silver and jewelry glittering just there for the taking. I remember thinking, now this is the life for me. I mean, after all, as a young boy, I could do basic math. Chris plus treasure equals happiness, right? But like many boyhood dreams, I had to grow up sometime. I could not bring my gray plastic sword to elementary school. No telling what I would have done with it there. Couldn't wear my eye patch. And go figure, high school... Career day, piracy wasn't even one of the options. And so my dream of becoming a pirate was dead. But it wasn't until years later that I realized I still had a pirate living within me. You see, by definition, a pirate is one who robs and hoards what doesn't belong to him so that he can use it for his own personal satisfaction. And even as Christians, sometimes we act and think just like pirates. Think about this. We take the good gifts, the treasures that God provides for us, and instead of using them to glorify God, who do we use them for? Ourselves. All of us can look back on a time in our our life when we selfishly used our time and our treasure and talents primarily for ourselves. 
Well, this passage this morning is going to be a great encouragement for us because we are going to look at the treasures of our heart. What is our true treasure? And so this passage is a great segue from last week's message. What did Ken challenge us? We are pilgrims. We are what? Sojourners, aliens. This is not our home. And so this passage that Christ delivers to us this morning is going to be a great segue from that, just encouraging us that where should our hope be? Where should our focus be? In heaven. So turn with me. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. And as you are turning there, let me remind you of some of the context. We know in chapter 4 of Matthew... Jesus begins his public ministry. When he gets to to Matthew chapter 5, this begins Jesus' teaching. Famous sermon, what? The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins to lay down the foundational teaching for our Christian lives. He, He talks about the Beatitudes. What does it mean to be happy in Christ, in the Lord? He talks about disciples, relationships. When we get into chapter 6, he begins to talk about giving. He begins to talk about prayer, and he begins to talk about fasting. Why is he talking about these things? Well, look at verse 1 in Matthew 6. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Why? Why do we like to demonstrate our righteousness in front of other people? To be noticed by whom? Men. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says this repeatedly throughout this chapter. Why do we give? Why do we pray? Why do we fast? It's not to please man. It's not to get their applause. Why do we do it? We do it to honor and glorify God. And guess what Jesus says? If you do it for Him, you will have reward. So it's no surprise that in Matthew 6, 19, Jesus begins to talk about treasure. Well, my hope for us today, this morning... It's to challenge all of us to consider what do we truly treasure. So this morning, we're going to look at three ways to help us identify where the treasure of our heart is. And as we go through these ways, I want you to compare and contrast your heart, your path. Which of these ways are you on? First of all, in verse 19, we see the wrong way. The wrong way. Notice what Jesus says here in Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Right off the bat, we have a prohibition. Jesus says, do not, meaning stop living this way. And it's interesting, when you look at the original language here in Greek, Jesus uses the verb form to treasure. So what is he, if we were to literally translate his words, it would be, do not treasure up treasure. Why does the Bible use repetition? To emphasize the importance of something. He's saying, do not treasure up treasures. And this is in the present tense active, meaning present tense. It has the idea of it is to be a continuous action. It's active, meaning who does the action? We don't sit back and wait for God to do the action. I am actively, continuously to not treasure up treasure. Where? Well, he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, this includes not only money, 
It also includes material possessions as well. I mean, think about the audience of Jesus when they're thinking about treasures, when they're thinking about money. In fact, it reminds me of the story that we get of Achan in Joshua 7.21. Remember, Israel got defeated in Ai. Why? Because there was a ban. Don't take any of their loot. Don't take any of their stuff. Don't take any of their treasures and what did Achan do? In Joshua 7.21, it says he coveted, he, he, he took. Where did he put that stuff? Do you remember? Where was the safest place for it? He dug a hole underneath his tent. You literally slept on it. There was no B of A. There was no cryptocurrency. You hid it. So he took his robe. You know what that robe was? It was like a mantle. It's just, just think of a really nice sweater vest. Silver, gold. Treasure. What does Jesus say? Do not treasure up for yourselves treasures on earth, but notice, for yourselves. Jesus is concerned here about selfishness in misplaced values. His disciples must not lay up earthly wealth for themselves. You know what he's saying here? Don't be self-centered. Why? Well, he tells us why. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. No matter how fine your clothing is, no matter how well made your precious possessions are, they're all in some stage of decay. In fact, my body is in a stage of decay. I don't hear so well. I don't see so well. You notice I had to put my glasses on. I'm like, how come I can't read my notes? Oh, yeah, I can't see. When I get off the couch, my body makes weird noises. I'm like, did I break something? Was that the couch? No, that was my body groaning, making weird noises. It's all in a stage of decay. Our things, our possessions, either going to wear out, the break up, they end in the trash pile, or someone will steal them. Someone will want what you have and they will take it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Our possessions are here today and what? Gone tomorrow. And they provide only passing pleasure. Why? Because they and themselves are passing and temporal. It's futile to amass earthly wealth and suppose that you can keep it safe. In fact, turn over with me to Luke 12, 15. Luke 12, 15. Luke 12, 15, Jesus teaching the crowd and he says to them, beware, be on your guard against every form of greed for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. For those of us that have a lot of material wealth and, and possessions and bank accounts and what is Jesus saying? Those things should not define you. That's not the sum of who you are. Your things, that's what Jesus is saying here. And then what does he do? Like he often did, he told them a parable. He tells them uh, uh, the land of a rich man was very productive. He begins reasoning to himself, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Don't you wish you had that problem? I got so much money and so many cars, I got to build a bigger driveway to park them all on. And because we're Texans, what, what do we have? Trucks. Can a man have enough trucks? Guys, you weren't, you weren't ready for that. Men, can a man have enough trucks? 
No. Hopefully this verse will convict you. He's got all this stuff. Where do I store it? Then he says, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build large ones. There I will store all my grain, all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You can just see him kicking his feet up and sitting back, thinking about all that he has, all that he earned so that he would have a life of what? Ease, comfort. Verse 20 But God said to him, you fool. Let me just pause. If God ever calls you a fool, buckle up. Is that ever good? You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Answer? He dies. He faces eternity. Who owns all of his stuff? Answer? Someone else. Verse 21, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is a wasted life. It's a wasted life. Regardless of how secure you and I think our savings are, our home is. I mean, all it takes is for a horde of termites, a fire, for you to lose your job. And who owns your home? It's either in a pile of ashes or dust, or, some, or the bank owns it. No matter how secure you think your investments are, FDIC insured or not, there are no guarantees in this fallen world. And to prove that, all I have to do is say one word, Enron. Where is Enron today? Some of you are like, Enron, what is that? I, I don't even know what that means. Oil and gas company. It was here today, and What? gone tomorrow. Here today, we had people in our church that were impacted when Enron closed its doors. Huge company, millions of dollars here today, gone tomorrow. It's temporal. It's passing. And while we may be able to hold on to it, to enjoy our wealth for a short time on this earth, we know from Scripture that we cannot take it with us when we go. Isn't that what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 7? What did we bring into this world? Answer, nothing. And so in verse 7, Paul says we can't take anything out of the world either. So here back in our text in Matthew 6, Jesus gives us a prohibition against the selfish accumulation of money and goods. I mean, think about this. After all, who owns everything that you and I have? Who owns it? Psalm 24 Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's, all it contains, the world, those who dwell in it, who provides everything that you have. First Chronicles 29, 12, both riches and honor come from thee. First Samuel 2, 7, the Lord makes poor and rich. The Lord giveth and what? The Lord taketh away. God does that. You're like, yeah, but I'm talented, I'm gifted. Look at the degrees I have. Look at the job. Look at what it says on my office door. And who gave you all of those gifts and talents? Who gave you all of those opportunities? And who can take it away like that? So if God owns it all, if God gives you everything that you have, your money, your fame, your health, your time, your skills, your family, your job, your possessions, who are you accountable to for how you use them? 
God. When's the last time you've thought about that? As you're driving back to lunch or home, go around the car and say, my spouse is yours, Lord. My kids are yours, Lord. This car is yours, Lord. As you're walking, this front door is yours, Lord. That sofa is yours, Lord. That football game is yours, Lord. That, this is yours. That's yours. Point to it and say, God, that's yours. You own that. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, Chris, this sounds like you're saying we can't have anything? I mean, does this mean we have to become a, a monk? Do, do I got to go find a hole in the ground to live in and become a holy monk? Some of you, that's going to hit you around lunchtime. <laughs> a monk in a hole, beca- okay, you'll get it. This verse is not saying it's a sin to provide for your family. It's not saying it's a sin to have wealth. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 11, Paul tells Timothy, we are to be content with what God has provided for our needs. With food and shelter, we shall be content. In fact, what is the problem? Is money the problem? What is the root of all sorts of evil? It's not money, it's what? It's the love of money. In fact, the love of money has brought many, a Christian, into problems and trouble and pains because they pursued it instead of the one who gave it to them. It's the whole argument of contentment versus coveting. And then Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, I love this. He says, Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Notice it's not wrong to have money, to have things, to have possessions. In fact, God gives us all of these things to what? What does the end of the verse say? To enjoy. That's part of God's goodness and grace. Some of you are like, whew, I don't have to give him my truck after all. I was not liking the way this sermon was going. We can enjoy it. We can thank the Lord for it. And notice how this verse tells us, how does God supply us? Richly. God richly supplies us. Why would someone who has money and wealth become conceited or arrogant? What would cause that? I call this the Nebuchadnezzar syndrome. You get out on your balcony and you look and you say, look what I've built. Look what I've created. Look at what all my might and wisdom has done. I am king or queen. Don't want to leave the ladies out. And you look at your kingdom and you say, how great is this? And then God turns you into a man cow for seven years to humble you and teach you what? This isn't your doing. This is my doing. And I can take it away like that. We are to take what God provides. We are to give thanks for it. We are to enjoy it. Some of you need to go out in Lake Conroe on your boat today and enjoy it. But then what do we do with it? We use it for God's purposes. We don't fix our hope on money or things or a job. Who do we fix them on? Because again, what did Paul say? Those things are uncertain, not the uncertainty of riches. But who is certain? The good gift giver. That's where I want to fix my hope, put my trust in. 
See, back here in Matthew 6, Jesus is saying it's wrong to covet and to collect earthly possessions. In fact, he's saying it's a sin when we fix our hope and efforts on the uncertainty of riches and all that riches bring rather than God. I was newly married, about 24 years old. I was a cop. My wife was a nurse. For 24-year-olds, we were the only people our age that had a house, two cars. We had all the toys, the TVs, the, 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 the computers. I mean, we had it all. We were making a lot of money. We were living the American dream. I think back to those days, to my own shame, how little money I gave away. How much money did I give to missionaries? How much money did I give to the church? In fact, my wife was always saying, hey, can we give a little bit more? I'm like, no, I think I'm fine with that. Because the more money I gave to God, the less money I had to what? Go on nice vacations. Buy more keyboards. I was going through a phase, I call it my hobby, where I was buying keyboards and computers and I was writing music and doing all of that stuff. And I literally had computers surrounding me. It's like, I, I, just, I need to be surrounded by the things I love, computers, keyboards, all for the glory of God. That's what I told my wife. She's like, ah. Yo-ho, yo-ho, the pirate's life for me. The pirate was alive and well. Even as Christians, we can grow to love money and all that it brings, possessions, fame, friends, pleasure, and success. Now, some of you are sitting here going, phew, well, I'm not wealthy, so this must not apply to me. Is that true? Because even when you're poor, when is it ever enough? Well, I'm blue collar. I'm in the middle. Same thing. When is it ever enough? You got to keep up with the Joneses or the Smiths. Contentment. This all-consuming treasure may not be money for you. For some of us, it could be a bigger home. It could be a better job. It could be a more prominent ministry position. It could even be a better car, a newer truck, a better truck with bigger tires. I want to be able to drive over people. (laughs) That's my dream. When we moved to Albania, I was hopefully a little bit more mature a little bit more like Christ. I was hoping my struggle with materialism and the love of the world would greatly decrease. After all, we were moving to one of the poorest countries in Europe. We took half of everything we owned and we sold it, we gave it away. Just imagine going to your house today and thinking, what half would I get rid of? Half of everything, not the children. You had to keep all of them. <laughs> do, you, do you want some of these kids? Because the rest of it we put in a big container. Everything we owned, pretty much we put in that container, we shipped it off to Albania. And we got to Albania, and you know what life was like in Albania? All the things that you typically don't hear about in the missionary newsletters. It was hard. The power would be shut off for days, hours sometimes, water, learning a foreign language. Some of you have lived overseas, and it's hard when you can't communicate with people. We would hear the, the, the Muslim call to prayer and surround sound. We were in a foreign land. See, what I didn't realize is when I bought that ticket to Albania, it also came with a free companion seat for my worldliness and materialism. I thought moving to a poor country would do what? Help me. And all it did was stir up what was already in my heart. And then 
you guys enabled that, sorry, but it's true. I began thinking of ways to comfort myself. Why is it that Europeans don't make peanut butter? Can someone please teach them how to make peanut butter? What is the deal? And they don't have Reese's peanut butter cups because what's in a Reese's peanut butter cup? Peanut butter. This is heartbreaking, people. I had to go to Greece to get Oreo cookies. What is up with that? And so you begin sending teams over, and what would you say to help us, to love us? Hey, what can we bring? You were like a mule train. Ah, bring me my stuff. Bring me my peanut butter. Like, why do the styers need like eight cases of peanut butter? They need it. Chris has a peanut butter uh, love. Yeah, we call that something else where I'm from. All things to make life more comfortable took money. Before I knew it, I was no longer content with what we had. Yo-ho, yo-ho, the pirate's life for me. Now, thankfully, in this season of my life, God convicted me in a way that I don't know that I responded so well as a young married, and I began to see it, and I began to hate it, and I began to study on it, and by God's grace, you know what? Is the pirate still in me? Now I'm 50. I'm a grandfather. Do I still struggle with the pirate life? Absolutely. I am fighting it every day. Thankfully, I don't struggle with it like I used to, but it's still there. For some of us, the treasure of their heart is their position at work. You know what? For some of you, it's power. It's control. For some of you, it's your family or even what we call a child-centered home where your kids are first. For some of you, if anything were to happen to your child, it would be devastating to you, which reveals what? Maybe you're fixing your hope and your love on them instead of the one who gave them to you. We must pray the prayer of Proverbs 30, verses 8 to 9. Proverbs 30, 8 to 9, where the writer of this proverb says, Lord, don't give me too much because if you give me too much, I'm going to be tempted to forget you, just like Nebuchadnezzar, just like all these others. But Lord, don't give me too little because if you give me too little, I might be tempted to steal. And the writer of the proverb says, feed me with the portion that I'm due. What does that mean? Give me just enough. Do you pray that? Lord, don't give me too much, because living the American dream, I might be more identified by my things than with Christ. But Lord, don't give me too little, because then I may be tempted to murder and kill and covet and do whatever it takes to get what I think I need to be happy. Give me just enough. I love what Dr. Kit Hughes said about this passage. He said this, listen carefully. If anything in this world is everything to you, it is an earthly treasure. If anything in this world is everything to you, it is an earthly treasure. What is everything to you this morning? Is there anything in your life that is everything? I mean, what are you willing to do to get it? Are you sinning to keep it? I have a friend who has this outrageous car payment because they wanted the car of their dreams. That car payment has enslaved them financially where they can't do anything else but make ends meet month to month. 
How do you respond when God takes it away from you? How do you respond when your toddler takes your iPhone 12, playing with it, and drops it in the toilet? I mean, you can take that sucker out of there and you can clean it off, but every time you put it up to your face, it's been in the toilet. Think about that. Thankfully, iPhone 13s are coming out. What do you do when God takes away your health? We've had a lot of that lately, haven't we? What do you do when your child rebels? What do you do when you lose your job? What do you do when you're still single? What do you do when your marriage sours? Again, what are you treasuring? What are the things that cause you great angst and anxiety and fear and worry? Or what do you do to, when God prevents you from getting it? He says no. Are you living the pirate life? Well, this is the wrong way. The wrong way is the selfish accumulation of money and goods, focusing our ambitions, our interests, our hopes, and our ultimate happiness where? On the passing earthly pleasures of this world. But thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. He also gives us the right way. Notice in verse 20. Notice we come to the right way in verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. Notice right off the bat we have this conjunction, but this conjunction is functioning in a way of comparing and contrasting. Don't do this, but in contrast, do this. And he uses the same verb form. But treasure up treasures. Same thing, present tense, active. Something we're to be consciously, actively, continually doing. And notice what he says, for yourselves. There is to be an intentional, conscious, daily, personal goal to store up treasure for yourself in heaven. When's the last time that thought has even entered into your mind? How many of you love to work with toddlers? All right, for the seven of you. When you get asked to work in the toddler ministry, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Diapers. I've never heard any ministry described like a prison as going to work with toddlers. Like, hey, I don't want to go back there. I've done my time. I've done my time. I've served it. I took care of my kids. I'm not going back. You can't make me go back there. I'll run. I'll run right now. Next time you get asked to go serve in a ministry or do something you don't want to do, I want you to consciously think and say, Lord, this is for you. I'm storing this up for you. Gwen is like so happy that I'm saying this because we always need help with the toddlers and the nursery care. Lord, this is for you, to your glory. Help me with patience. Conscious daily goal. And where are we to store it? Well, it's clear. Where do we store up for yourself these treasures? In heaven. Because the reality is, we already read it, you're either going to be rich toward God or you're going to be rich toward whom? Yourself. How do we know that? Can you be rich toward God and rich toward yourself at the same time? What does verse 24 say? 
No one can serve two masters, for either they will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot. You're either going to be rich toward God, or you are going to be rich toward you. That's what Jesus says here. You use the time, the talents, the treasures that God gives you for heavenly kingdom purposes. In fact, later on in this chapter, we have the the cure for anxiety in verse 25. Why do you get anxious about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat? God knows what you need. Don't worry. And then what does he say in verse 33? In fact, part of the solution is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and some of these things will be added to you. A few, a handful, is that what it says? All. What you need, God will provide. But what must we do? Seek first his kingdom. Have a heavenly mindset. God will provide. So you love your neighbor. You, you strive to reach the lost. You want to help strengthen the church. And what does God promise? You will receive heavenly reward So you help your neighbor mow his lawn. When I had COVID and I was stuck in Utah for weeks, you know what my neighbors did? They mowed my lawn, didn't ask. I I mean, it probably would have been like this tall by the time I got back. Our neighborhood sends you a letter if you don't keep your lawn mowed. Put me in like the HOA jail. I don't know if they have one, but, you know, hey, you didn't mow your lawn. I know, I was sick. You know what they did? They just did it. When's the last time you've thought about doing that for someone in your neighborhood? Maybe you have someone who's elderly and can't, shouldn't be on ladders, and so you get up and clean their gutters. Ask one of us. Ask a pastor. Ask an elder. Ask a ministry leader if there's some way you can serve. I fear that there are many of us who are still on the bench. You need to get off the bench and in the game. God has gifted you. Some of you need to get back on the bench because you're doing too much. Maybe instead of going out as a family to eat three times a week, you only go out twice. And as a family, you say, we're going to use that money and we're going to give it to a missionary or we're going to give it to the church or we're going to support one of the students in Uganda with SOS Ministries. We're going to use that creatively. As a family, we're going to sacrifice four bucks instead of getting a four bucks. I'm going to take that four bucks and use it at Starbucks, right? What, no Starbucks lovers in here? You're like, I'm deeply offended that you're making fun of my coffee place. Yeah, and you take that money and you use it somewhere else. There's an intentionality. How about this? We have so many new families in our church. Once you get on Ken Parkin's email list for moving, you're like, oh man, I regret it. Because when do they typically move new families? The one day, Saturday, you get to sleep in. And you get that email and you can already see the heading and you're like, oh, Ken Parkin, you're killing me. And what are you thinking? Ah, someone else will do it. In that moment, where are you storing up treasure? God, this is for you. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to serve for you. These are just a few ways to practically store up treasure in heaven. There's so many more. Why? Why does Jesus say this back in Matthew 6, 20? Because again, it's the opposite. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. What's the point? Again, he's comparing and contrasting. 
There's the temporal. There's the passing. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. But when you get into the heavenly kingdom, what are those things? They do not destroy. They do not rust. Moth can't eat them. Rust won't kill it. Nobody can steal it. These are eternal, indestructible reward. I wish we had time to go there. You can look at it later. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 14. This is the wood, hay, straw passage. Paul tells the Corinthian church there that if we use everything that God has given us for his glory and his purposes, then we will receive an eternal heavenly reward. Church, do you believe that? It's waiting for you. But if we don't use God's gift, time, talents, money, and possessions for God, and again, can Christians do this? This was written to the church. In fact, the warning there is there are some of you who are going to get to heaven, but because you did what you did for you, works of wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to burn up. Where did you get your reward? On earth. But if you laid a foundation storing up that treasure in heaven, what is it? It's the gold, the diamonds, the precious stones, and it's there waiting for you. Well, Some of you are saying, okay, Chris, well, I mean, how do I know? How do I know if the earthly work that I'm doing here is going to result in heavenly reward? How do I know if I'm really treasuring up treasure in heaven? I just want you to ask yourself this. Why am I doing this, and who am I doing it for? Why am I signing up for the toddler ministry? Not out of guilt, not out of shame. And who am I doing it for? There's a student who can't afford to buy a laptop. You have one that's two years old, and so what do you do? Instead of selling it, taking that, buying a new one, you give it to them. Why did you do that? Who are you doing that for? You see, worthless works are focused on us. In some way, they're focused on our own selfish pleasures or desires. Because here's the thing. Even if we obey God externally, but we do it with a sinful motive, will God reward that? You do the right thing for the wrong reason. Is God going to reward that? No. You're not going to receive reward. In fact, this good work's going to burn up. In fact, what's the context of Matthew 6. Why did the religious leaders pray? Why did they give? Why did they fast? To be noticed by men. Maybe you do what you do to be noticed, to have the reputation. I'm the servant. I'm the this guy. I'm the that woman. I'm the, that's my ministry. Maybe you do it out of fear. Maybe shame motivates you. You know, sadly for many of us, I just think it's joyless obligation. You know it's part of Christian life. And so you do your service joylessly, duty, obligation. Who are you doing it for? What's the right answer? Colossians 3, do your work heartily as unto the children's ministry worker, right? No, unto the Lord. Rather than for men, knowing from whom you will receive your reward. We do what we do for the glory of God. Why? Because he's worthy. This is the right way of living 
a life focused on using what God gives us to love God first and then love others second. You see how the greatest commandment, the second that, that, that motivates all of this, God, I'm doing this for you. You gave it to me. I'm giving it back to you. Thankful for it. I'm enjoying it. But Lord, as I think about it, how can I use this to love someone else? It's finding joy in taking God's gifts, using them for his glory. And sometimes that means we get to enjoy them. We get to keep them for ourselves. And you know what else it means? Sometimes we get to give it away. We look for someone in need, or at the very least, you use that giant monster truck to help somebody. Again, 1 Timothy 6, 17, God provides all things to enjoy. You know what that means? When you think of your possessions and the things that God has provided, how must you hold them? Like this? This is mine. God, don't take this away. How should you hold it? Open hand, Lord. This is not mine, it's yours. My wife, my health, my eyesight, my creaking bones, my children, my job, my ministry, my gifts, my voice, my money, my cars. It all belongs to you. And when it starts to do this, what must you do? Go back to Scripture and remind yourself, Lord, it's not mine, it's yours. Thank you for it. I want to enjoy it. But I don't want the enjoyment of these things to create a greater affection for this world because it's not my home. My home is waiting. In today's economy, people want to invest in something that's going to earn them a return. Guess what, Christian? We must invest eternally. Ask yourself how important your earthly fame is going to be in the future of eternity. What happens to your, all your degrees and the title that's on your office door? When you die or the Lord comes, they throw it away. It burns. How important is your new iPhone 13 going to be? Guess what? We are not going to have iPhones in heaven. I am so sorry to tell you that. Some of you are like, I'm already getting anxious about that. I have to have my phone. If they could surgically implant my iPhone into my body, I would do that in a heartbeat. Are you making the right investments now? Are you consumed with getting money so that you can buy whatever it is that you have your set on, heart set on? Again, Christ reminds us that the pleasure from this item is only going to last a short time, which is why we should focus our heart on storing up for ourselves earthly treasure. You know, exchanging the eternal for the temporal is no bargain, but it's the lie that Satan is selling, and sadly, many in the church have bought into it. So why have so many of us in the church today bought into the lie of earthly treasure? I think the problem is simple. I don't think that we think enough about Christ and the treasures of heaven. Because we live in this earth and we're so busy with life and mortgage, which literally means death grip in Latin. Those of you who have a mortgage, you understand that. Every month it's due. It's got me in its grip. It's killing me. We don't think enough about Christ. We don't practice the principle found in Philippians 1.21. What does Philippians 1.21 say? For to me, to live is, and to die is, gain. I think I understand that. I don't know that I always live it. And if I'm not living it, do I really believe it? For me to live is Christ. In this life, I get Christ. And if I die... 
Who else do I get? Christ. Either way, I win. Well, what is this treasure? Is it a palace full of pirate treasure? No. Again, John 14, verses 2 to 4, remind us that Christ is going to prepare a, a place for us to be with him for all of eternity. In fact, according to Philippians 3, 20 to 21, this is a passage Ken read to us last week. Philippians 3, 20 to 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we, how do we wait? Eagerly wait for a Savior. Sometimes we get a little too comfortable on this earth. I don't know that I'm eagerly waiting for Christ to come back. I'm happy here. I'm happy with my life now. In fact, if Christ were to come back, it would interfere with, with, interfere with my plan, my goal, my dreams, my vision. But no, our citizenship is in heaven, so we should be eagerly waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what else? Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. That's an amazing thought. He's going to transform our bodies. My body will not creak when I get up off the sofa anymore. I will be able to hear clearly and see without these glasses. But we also get a place in heaven which Christ is preparing for us. And don't miss this. We get Christ. You get to talk with your Savior. You get to see Him face to face. The one who died for you. What an amazing thought. You want to know what motivates missionaries to go overseas to suffer, to sacrifice? It's the same thing that motivates you and me to go across the street and share the gospel with our neighbors. It's the same thing that motivates us to sign up for the toddler ministry. It's the same thing that motivates us to take everything that we have and use it for the glory of God. To love God and love others, the church and the lost. And you know what it is? It's the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15 what controls us? Not fear, not shame, not guilt. It is the love of Christ that controls us. Having concluded that one died, therefore all have died. And verse 15 tells us that those who have died would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again for them. Jesus Christ is worthy. He's worthy of your love and your obedience and a life serving him. That's why you strive to please Him. We love because He first loved us. How could I not take everything that He's given me and use it for Him and His glory? How could I not? Isn't this the gospel? That's really the gospel is what motivates us. Think about this. I am a sinner deserving to go to hell. God said, do this, don't do this, and I did the opposite. I'm not living your way, God. I'm living my way. And what did you do? For God so loved the world that he sent his son from heaven to earth, lived a perfect life, died an unjust death, three days later rose from the dead to show that he had power over the grave, to show that God accepted Christ in his death in my place. Because what are the wages of sin? Death. Someone had to die. Christ took that death on his body and he rose again. 
so that any man, woman, or child this morning would repent of their sin and recognize, God, you're, I admit it, I am a sinner, I did it, I deserve help, and transfer their trust from whatever it is they're trusting being a good moral person or getting baptized when they were a kid or going to church or or being better than someone else. Whatever it is you're trusting for salvation, you take that trust and transfer it from that and put it on the person and work of Jesus Christ who alone can save you. Gratitude, thankfulness, overwhelming your heart. And the Word of God promises that the death that Christ died for you will result in your eternal life in heaven. What an amazing thought. And so as you think about the gospel and you think about what Jesus Christ has done for you, you conclude, he died for me so that I wouldn't have to live for myself. I do that naturally. No one had to teach me that. Lord, teach me how to live for you so that whether you call me to go overseas or whether you call me to go to my neighbor at school or my friend at work, and share the good news with them that I would be willing to do, to take everything you've given and use it for your glory. Don't be fooled. Nothing can compare to the eternal, magnificent riches of being in heaven with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Nothing. So far we've examined the wrong way and the right way, and sometimes it can be difficult for us to tell what we really treasure. So Jesus concludes by examining, explaining the true way This is the means for us to know for sure what path we're truly on. This is the short one. Don't worry. You're like, Chris, you're out of time. I know. Story of my life. What is the true way? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice we have another conjunction, for. He's comparing the wrong way with the right way. The for, this conjunction serves as a summary. And that's really what verse 21 does for us. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things that are most highly treasured occupy the heart, the center of a personality embracing the mind, the emotions, and the will. So not only will our affections focus on our treasure, but our entire self is going to be entwined with it. Think about this. As a result, whatever happens to our treasure happens to us. That's why so often something you love more than Jesus Christ, when God takes it away from you, how do you respond? You feel devastated. You feel like, I can't go on. Why? It's possible that you begin to love that thing or that person more than Christ. If you don't get that promotion or bonus that you were counting on, do you lose, lose all joy and contentment? You start thinking the grass is greener. You start looking for another job. Maybe you don't get asked to lead a small group at church. Do you grow bitter and upset? I mean, our most cherished treasures are always going to control the direction of our life and our values. Changes how we think, how we spend our money, how we spend our time. So I want to ask you this morning, what do you treasure? What do you treasure? What do you love? What do you talk about? What do you think about? What do you spend time doing? What do you spend your money on? What do you put your hope in? What do you become most anxious about or dread losing the most? What do you put your future in? What do you find ultimately most satisfying in this life? Because if you want to know what you treasure, then you have to evaluate your time, your talents, and your treasure. We can learn so much about ourselves if we just analyze our weekly calendar. 
What am I doing? What motivates me? What, what, what dominates my schedule? Why do you think Jesus talks more about money than either he- heaven or hell in the New Testament? Because your view of money and how you use it and spend it says a lot about what you really love. That's why there's so many warnings in the New Testament. What do you invest in? In fact, what you pray about says a lot about it, doesn't it? Think about the things you pray for. If you pray a lot for you, what might that indicate? Where are your eyes? Where's your heart? What are you thinking of first? Yourself. That might be an indication that you are self-centered, even in your prayer life. It's good for us to ask that. So Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 3.1, since then, you have been raised with Christ. You are in Christ. You are saved. Set your hearts where? Things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You see, what you cherish most will always control the direction of your life. You are either going to have joy in self or you are going to have joy in Christ. Well, in conclusion, this morning we've examined three ways to help us identify where the treasure of our heart is. And sadly, as Christians, many earthly millionaires are going to be heavenly paupers. Many earthly paupers are going to be heavenly millionaires. If I can quote one of my favorite missionaries, martyred, bringing the gospel to the Amazon rainforest, Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Did you get that? He is no fool. She is no fool who gives what she cannot keep, the things of this earth, to gain what she cannot lose, Christ in eternal reward. Amen? I trust that is your heart and your prayer this morning. What do you treasure? Are you living the pirate life? Yo-ho, yo-ho, the pirate's life for me. Is that really the siren song of your heart? Are you robbing God by using what he's given you primarily on your own selfish comforts and ambition? I pray that the words of Jesus this morning will challenge us to repent of the pirate's life so that we might live the Christ-centered life of one who has found that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Lord God, these words are challenging and convicting to my heart. Because as the song that we sang earlier, I am, my heart is prone to wander. I get so distracted by the things of this earth. I get so caught up in my own goals and my own things. Even ministry can become an idol of my heart. If I do it for me and not for you. Lord God, I'm so grateful that you're patient with us. Lord, this morning, would you use the words of your son, Jesus Christ, to convict us if we are living the pirate life? If we have begun to love the things of this passing earthly place more than you, if we have begun to eagerly await for the rewards and accomplishments of this earth rather than eagerly awaiting the Savior, Jesus Christ, in his return, Lord, would you forgive us, convict us, would you renew our hearts and minds so that more than anything in life, we would want to love and please you. 
because you alone are worthy. So would you do that work in our hearts, Lord? Help us to see the things that we have begun to hold with a fist clenched tightly. And then instead, we would hold on to Christ that way. We love you. We thank you. Use these words, your truth, your scripture, to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.